Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Chapter 126. The Life Buoy. Steering now southeastward by Ahab's leveled steel, and her progress solely determined by Ahab's level log and line, the Pequod held on her path towards the equator. Making so long a passage through such unfrequented waters, descrying no ships and ere long sideways impelled by unvarying trade winds, other waves monotonously mild, all these seem the strange calm things preluding some riotous, and desperate scene. At last, when the ship drew near to the outskirts, as it were, of the equatorial fishing ground, and in the deep darkness that goes before the dawn, was sailing by a cluster of rocky islets, the watch, then headed by Flask, was startled by a cry so plaintively wild and unearthly, like half-articulated wailings of the ghosts of all Herod's murdered innocents that one and all they started from their reveries, and for the space of some moments stood, or sat, or leaned all transfixedly listening, like the carved Roman slave, while that wild cry remained within hearing. The Christian or civilized part of the crew said it was mermaids, and shuddered. But the pagan harpooners remained unappalled. Yet the grey manxman, the oldest mariner of all, declare that the wild, thrilling sounds that were heard were the voices of newly drowned men in the sea. Below in his hammock Ahab did not hear of this till grey dawn, when he came to the deck. It was then recounted to him by flask, not unaccompanied with hinted dark meanings. He hollowly laughed, and thus explained the wonder. Those rocky islands the ship had passed were the resort of great numbers of seals, and some young seals that had lost their dams, or some dams that had lost their cubs, must have risen nigh the ship and kept company with her, crying and sobbing with their human sort of wail. But this only the more affected some of them, because most mariners cherish a very superstitious feeling about seals— arising not only from their peculiar tones when in distress, but also from the human look of their round heads and semi-intelligent faces, seen peeringly uprising from the water alongside. In the sea, under certain circumstances, seals have more than once been mistaken for men. But the bodings of the crew were destined to receive a most plausible confirmation in the fate of one of their number that morning. At sunrise this man went from his hammock to his masthead at the fore, and whether it was that he was not yet half-waked from his sleep, for sailors sometimes go aloft in a transition state, whether it was thus with the man, there is now no telling. But be that as it may, he had not been long at his perch when a cry was heard, a cry and a rushing, and looking up they saw a falling phantom in the air, 
and looking down a little tossed heap of white bubbles in the blue of the sea. The life buoy, a long slender cask, was dropped from the stern, where it always hung obedient to a cunning spring, but no hand rose to seize it. And the sun, having long beat upon this cask, it had shrunken, so that it slowly filled, and that parched wood also filled at its every pore, and the studded, iron-bound cask followed the sailor to the bottom, as if to yield him his pillow, though in sooth but a hard one. And thus the first man of the Pequod that mounted the mast to look out for the white whale, on the white whale's own peculiar ground, that man was swallowed up in the deep. But few, perhaps, thought of that at the time. Indeed, in some sort, they were not grieved at this event, at least as a portent. For they regarded it, not as a foreshadowing of evil in the future, but as the fulfillment of an evil already presaged. They declared that now they knew the reason of those wild shrieks they had heard the night before. But again the old Manxman said nay. The lost life buoy was now to be replaced. Starbuck was directed to see to it, but as no cask of sufficient lightness could be found, and as in the feverish eagerness of what seemed the approaching crisis of the voyage, all hands were impatient of any toil but what was directly connected with its final end, whatever that might prove to be. Therefore they were going to leave the ship's stern unprovided with a buoy, when by certain strange signs and innuendos Queequeg hinted a hint concerning his coffin. "'A life buoy of a coffin!' cried Starbuck, starting. "'Rather queer, that, I should say,' said Stubb. "'It will make a good enough one,' said Flask. "'The carpenter here can arrange it easily.' "'Bring it up. There's nothing else for it,' said Starbuck, after a melancholy pause. "'Rig it, carpenter. Do not look at me so. The coffin, I mean. Dost thou hear me? Rig it.' "'And shall I nail down the lid, sir?' "'moving his hand as with a hammer. "'Aye. "'And shall I caulk the seams, sir? "'Moving his hand as with a caulking iron. "'Aye. "'And shall I then pay over the same with pitch, sir? "'Moving his hand as with a pitch pot. "'Away. "'What possesses thee to this? "'Make a life buoy of the coffin and no more. "'Mr. Stubb, Mr. Flask, come forward with me. He goes off in a huff, the whole he can endure as the part he balks. Now, I don't like this. I make a leg for Captain Ahab, and he wears it like a gentleman. But I make a bandbox for Queequeg, and he won't put his head into it. Are all my pains to go for nothing with that coffin? And now I'm ordered to make a life buoy of it. It's like turning an old coat, going to bring the flesh on the other side now. I don't like this cobbling sort of business. I don't like it at all. It's undignified. It's not my place. Let tinkers' brats do tinkerings. We are their betters. I like to take in hand none but clean, virgin, fair and square mathematical jobs, something that regularly begins at the beginning, and is at the middle and midway, and comes to an end at the conclusion— not a cobbler's job that's at an end in the middle and at the beginning at the end. 
"'It's the old woman's tricks to be given cobbling jobs. "'Lord, what an affection all old women have for tinkers. "'I know an old woman of sixty-five "'who ran away with a bald-headed young tinker once. "'And that's the reason I never would work "'for lonely widow old women ashore "'when I kept my job shop in the vineyard. "'They might have taken it into their lonely old heads "'to run off with me. "'But hey-ho, there are no caps at sea but snow-caps.' Let me see. Nail down the lid, caulk the seams, pay over the same with pitch, batten them down tight, and hang it with the snap spring over the ship's stern. Wherever such things done before with a coffin, some superstitious old carpenters now would be tied up in the rigging ere they would do the job. But I'm made of naughty rustic hemlock. I don't budge. Cruppered with a coffin, sailing about with a graveyard tray, "'But never mind. "'We workers in woods make bridal bedsteads and card tables "'as well as coffins and hearses. "'We work by the month, or by the job, or by the profit. "'Not for us to ask the why and wherefore of our work, "'unless it be too confounded cobbling. "'And then we stash it if we can. Hmm. "'I'll do the job, now, tenderly. "'I'll have me, let's see, how many in the ship's company all told.' "'But I've forgotten. "'Anyway, I'll have me thirty separate, "'Turks-headed lifelines, each three feet long, "'hanging all round to the coffin. "'Then, if the hull go down, "'there'll be thirty lively fellows, "'all fighting for one coffin. "'A sight not seen very often beneath the sun. "'Come, hammer, caulking iron, pitch-pot, and marling spike. "'Let's to it.'" Chapter 127 the deck. The coffin laid upon two line tubs between the vice bench and the open hatchway. The carpenter caulking its seams, the string of twisted oakum slowly unwinding from a large roll of it placed in the bosom of his frock. Ahab comes slowly from the cabin gangway, and here's Pip following him. Back, lad, I will be with ye again presently. He goes. Not this hand complies with my humor more genially than that boy. Middle aisle of a church, what's here? Life buoy, sir, Mr. Starbuck's orders. Oh, look, sir, beware the hatchway. Thank ye, man. Thy coffin lies handy to the vault. Sir, the hatchway. Oh, sir, it does, sir, so it does. Art not thou the leg-maker? Look, did not this stump come from thy shop? I believe it did, sir. Does it stand, sir? Well enough, but art thou not also the undertaker? Aye, sir. I patched up this thing here as coffin for Queequeg, but they've set me now to turning it into something else. Then tell me, art thou not an errant, all-grasping, intermeddling, monopolizing, heathenish old scamp, to be one day making legs and the next day coffins to clap them in, and yet again life buoys out of those same coffins. Thou art as unprincipled as the gods, and as much of a jack-of-all-trades. But I do not mean anything, sir. I do as I do. The gods again. Hark ye, dost thou not ever sing working about a coffin? The titans, they say, hummed snatches when chipping out the craters for volcanoes. 
"'and the gravedigger in the play sings, spade in hand. "'Dost thou never?' "'Sing, sir, do I sing? "'Oh, I'm indifferent enough, sir, for that. "'But the reason why the gravedigger made music "'must have been because there was none in his spade, sir. "'But the caulking mallet is full of it. "'Hark to it. "'I, and that's because the lid there's a sounding-board.' And what in all things make the sounding board is this. There's naught beneath. And yet a coffin with a body in it rings pretty much the same, Carpenter. Hast thou ever helped carry a beer and heard the coffin knock against the churchyard gate going in? Faith, sir, I've... Faith, what's that? Why, faith, sir, it's only a sort of exclamation like, That's all, sir. Mm, go on. I was about to say, sir, that... Art thou a silkworm? Dost thou spin thy own shroud out of thyself? Look at thy bosom. Dispatch, and get these traps out of sight. He goes aft. That was sudden now. But squalls come sudden in hot latitudes. I've heard that the Isle of Albemarle, one of the Galapagos, is cut by the equator right in the middle... Seems to me some sort of equator cuts yon old man, too, right in his middle. He's always under the line, fiery hot, I tell ye. He's looking this way. Come, Oakham, quick, here we go again. This wooden mallet is the cork, and I'm the professor of musical glasses. Tap, tap. Ahab to himself. There's a sight, there's a sound. The gray-headed woodpecker tapping the hollow tree. Blind and dumb might well be envied now. See, that thing rests on two line-tubs full of tow-lines. A most malicious wag, that fellow. Rat-tat. So man's seconds tick. Oh, how immaterial are all materials. What things real are there but imponderable thoughts? Here now is the very dreaded symbol of grim death, by a mere hap, made the expressive sign of the help and hope of most endangered life. A life buoy of a coffin. Does it go further? Can it be that in some spiritual sense the coffin is, after all, but an immortality preserver? I'll think of that. But no. So far gone am I in the dark side of earth that its other side, the theoretic bright one, "'seems but uncertain twilight to me. "'Will ye never have done, Carpenter, "'with that accursed sound? "'I go below. "'Let me not see that thing here "'when I return again. "'Now then, Pip, we'll talk this over. "'I do suck most wondrous philosophies from thee. "'Some unknown conduits from the unknown worlds "'must empty into thee. "'Chapter 128 "'The Pequod meets the Rachel. Next day, a large ship, the Rachel, was disgraced, bearing directly down upon the Pequod, all her spars thickly clustering with men. At the time, the Pequod was making good speed through the water. But as the broad-winged, windward stranger shot nigh to her, the boastful sails all fell together as blank bladders that are burst, and all life fled from the smitten hull. "'Bad news. She brings bad news,' muttered the Manxman. 
But ere her commander, who with trumpet to mouth, stood up in his boat, ere he could hopefully hail, Ahab's voice was heard. Hast seen the white whale? Ah, yesterday. Have ye seen a whaleboat adrift? Throttling his joy, Ahab negatively answered this unexpected question, and would then have fain boarded the stranger, when the stranger captain himself, having stopped his vessel's way, was seen descending her side. A few keen pulls and his boat hook soon clinched the Pequod's main chains, and he sprang to the deck. Immediately he was recognized by Ahab for an Antucketer he knew, but no formal salutation was exchanged. "'Where was he? Not killed, not killed?' cried Ahab, closely advancing. "'How was it?' "'It seemed that somewhat late on the afternoon of the day previous, "'while three of the stranger's boats were engaged with the shoal of whales, "'which had led them some four or five miles from the ship, "'and while they were yet in swift chase to windward, "'the white hump and head of Moby Dick "'had suddenly loomed up out of the water, "'not very far to leeward.' whereupon the fourth rig boat, a reserved one, had been instantly lowered in chase. After a keen sail before the wind, this fourth boat, the swiftest keeled of all, seemed to have succeeded in fastening, at least as well as the man at the masthead could tell anything about it. In the distance he saw the diminished dotted boat, and then a swift gleam of bubbling white water. And after that, nothing more, whence it was concluded that the stricken whale must have indefinitely run away with his pursuers, as often happens. There was some apprehension, but no positive alarm as yet. The recall signals were placed in the rigging, darkness came on, and forced to pick up her three far-to-windward boats, ere going in quest of the fourth one in the precisely opposite direction— the ship had not only been necessitated to leave that boat to its fate till near midnight, but for the time to increase her distance from it. But the rest of her crew, being at last safe aboard, she crowded all sail, stunsail on stunsail after the missing boat, kindling a fire in her tripods for a beacon, and every other man aloft on the lookout. But though, when she had thus sailed a sufficient distance, to gain the presumed place of the absent ones when last seen, though she then paused to lower her spare boats to pull all around her, and not finding anything, had again dashed on, again paused and lowered her boats, and though she had thus continued doing till daylight, yet not the least glimpse of the missing keel had been seen. The story told the stranger captain immediately went on to reveal his object in boarding the Pequod, he desired that ship to unite with his own in the search. By sailing over the sea some four or five miles apart, on parallel lines, and so sweeping a double horizon, as it were. "'I will wager something now,' whispered Stubb to Flask, "'that someone in that missing boat wore off that captain's best coat. Mayhap his watch. He's so cursed anxious to get it back.' Whoever heard of two pious whale-ships cruising after one missing whale-boat in the height of the whaling season? See, Flask, only see how pale he looks, pale in the very buttons of his eyes. Look, it wasn't the coat, 
It must have been the... My boy, my boy is among them. For God's sake, I beg, I conjure. Here exclaimed the stranger captain to Ahab, who thus far had but icily received his petition. For eight and forty hours let me charter your ship. I will gladly pay for it, and roundly pay for it, if there be no other way. For eight and forty hours only, only that. You must, oh, you must, and you shall do this thing. His son, cried Stubb. Oh, it's his son he's lost. I take back the coat and watch. What says Ahab? We must save that boy. He's drowned with the rest of them last night, said the old Manx sailor, standing behind them. I heard. All of ye heard their spirits. Now, as it shortly turned out, what made this incident of the Rachels the more melancholy was the circumstance that not only was one of the captain's sons among the number of the missing boat's crew, but among the number of the other boat's crews at the same time, but on the other hand, separated from the ship during the dark vicissitudes of the chase, there had been still another son. As that, for a time, the wretched father was plunged to the bottom of the cruelest perplexity, which was only solved for him by his chief mates instinctively adopting the ordinary procedure of a whale-ship in such emergencies. That is, when placed between jeopardized but divided boats, always to pick up the majority first. But the captain, for some unknown constitutional reason, had refrained from mentioning all this, and not till forced to it by Ahab's iciness did he allude to his one yet missing boy, a little lad, but twelve years old, whose father, with the earnest but unmisgiving hardihood of a Nantucketer's paternal love, had thus early sought to initiate him in the perils and wonders of a vocation almost immemorially the destiny of all his race. Nor does it unfrequently occur that Nantucket captains will send a son of such tender age away from them for a protracted three or four years' voyage in some other ship than their own, so that their first knowledge of a whalesman's career should be uninveterated by any chance display of a father's natural but untimely partiality or undue apprehensiveness and concern. Meantime, now the stranger was still beseeching his poor boon of Ahab, and Ahab still stood like an anvil, receiving every shock, but without the least quivering of his own. I will not go, said the stranger, till you say I to me. Do to me as you would have me do to you in the like case. For you too have a boy, Captain Ahab, though but a child, and nestling safely at home now. A child of your old age too. Yes, yes, you relent. I see it. Run, run, men, now, and stand by to square in the yards. Avast, cried Ahab, touch not a rope yarn. Then in a voice that prolongingly molded every word, Captain Gardner, I will not do it. Even now I lose time. Goodbye, goodbye, God bless ye, man, and may I forgive myself, but I must go. Mr. Starbuck, look at the binnacle watch, and in three minutes from this present instant, warn off all strangers. Then brace forward again, and let the ship sail as before. Hurriedly turning, with averted face, he descended into his cabin, leaving the strange captain transfixed at this unconditional and utter rejection of his so earnest suit. 
but starting from his enchantment, Gardner silently hurried to the side. More fell than stepped into his boat and returned to his ship. Soon the two ships diverged their wakes, and long as the strange vessel was in view, she was seen to yaw hither and thither at every dark spot, however small on the sea. This way and that her yards were swung round, starboard and larboard. She continued to tack. Now she beat against a head sea, and again it pushed her before it, while all the while her masts and yards were thickly clustered with men, as three tall cherry trees, when the boys are cherrying among the boughs. But by her still halting course and winding woeful way, you plainly saw that this ship, so wept with spray, still remained without comfort. She was Rachel, weeping for her children, because they were not. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.